Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. My name is Corey DiBiase. I, as always, am your host. It's a pleasure to have you back. So you'll recall last time we were talking about, uh, as we've been continuing this conversation about the various aspects of mind, including consciousness, selfhood, of course, for our purposes, free will, we were talking about why it is so hard to cultivate an explanation for those phenomena that not only is sensible, that fits within our kind of naturalist expectations for philosophical explanations, but that also resonates with us, that also makes sense to us on a, if you'll excuse the term, on a gut level, on an emotional level, that that somehow seems to resonate with us as creatures who uh, not only think about free will in the abstract, but experience free will, who use it in our day-to-day -day lives. Those of us who use consciousness to experience a sunset or to listen to music. Those of us who believe ourselves to have a sort of richly cultivated notion of individual selfhood. Why is it so hard to create a perspective, to create an explanation for these phenomena that seems to fit with those various notions of how, uh, of, of, of our actual experience of these phenomena. So as we were talking about that, we first talked about the, the kind of, the, the sort of, I called it the, the radical ubiquity, the, the constant perspective that we always have on every experience we've ever had. We're, we're always in the same place in our experiences, right? We're always, we're always right here, right in front of them. We're always right at the, at the, we're in the best seat, the seat at the house, but everything is in front of us. Everything is part of what we're experiencing. Even things that are more internal experiences, our, the feeling of our physical body, our emotions, our memories, nonetheless, those all seem to fall somehow in front of that radically ubiquitous perceiver that because we're able to uh, sort of create patterns with these things, we look at all of our experiences and we say, oh, okay, so, so this one piece of every experience that's there, the fact of it having been observed and felt and, well, well, experienced, well, that must mean something so that that just the experiencer of all of my experiences, somehow that turns into the real me. And that's how we, the, again, I should, I'm constantly waving my fingers around as if you can, uh, as if you can possibly make any sense of that or see it or perceive it in any way. Um, but that the quote unquote real me, that is the perceiver that is there in every experience that I have. That is so uh, much the quote-unquote real me that you could somehow sensibly take that piece out of all of my experiences and plug it into a different set of all life experiences. And it would somehow make sense that the, this question of what would it mean if I had been born as a different person in a different country speaking a different language and different economic circumstances and, and all the rest of it. So starting with that, we kind of built on the foundation of that that difficulty, that challenge that that creates for us as we're always measuring these ideas of mind against our own kind of internal checkpoints, our, our own little laboratory that we've set up to say, oh, well, th does that theory sound like what 
what it's like for me to have this? Well, that's kind of what the, the lab looks like. So the lab can kind of end up contorting our theories a little bit because of, um, you know, because it is a very subjective experience that we're having. But, you know, the, that's that's as an aside. Built on the foundation of, of that difficulty, add the difficulty that we have talked about these ideas for thousands of years. And that constant talking, that constant thinking, that constant writing, it over time, it, it kind of adds a weight to these ideas. The way, I mean, if, if you watch, uh, you know, any show on archaeology on PBS or whatever, and, and you see the, the little lines that show as they're digging out a site and they, they show you the 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 dugout piece around all of the the site where it's being dug out and you just look and you see layer after layer little lines layer after layer after layer and someone says you know each one of these layers is is a year or maybe it's even a, a much longer period of time each one of these layers represents a period of time and you can just see how the the sand or the dirt or the silt or whatever else it is is just piled up ever so slowly year after year after year but in all that time, you barely see it happening, but in all that time, of course, the weight of it becomes quite significant. Uh, well, the same thing happens with us and our use of language, which, by the way, is prop is older by, I mean, simply has to be older than the oldest of those ruins that we've excavated. And in all that time, we've been just doing layer after layer after layer after layer of meaning and, uh, and intricacy and expectation that we are laying on these words like mind, consciousness, freedom. I, I think freedom might quote unquote suffer from this most of all, although I don't want to say it's it's not a bad thing. Actually, it's uh, you know when we kind of flip the the when we flip the coin here and we, and we see what all this means when we're thinking about solutions rather than challenges when we're actually trying to explain these ideas. Well, it turns out this accretion of meaning meaning happening year after year. Well, that's going to be really, really a fun tool that we have to work with when we're trying to explain why freedom means something so very important to us. But, but again, as I as I continue to say, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I mean, once once we've got the answer, there's no point continuing to ask the question. So we got to stick here in the challenge part for a while, so we can we can enjoy this. We can linger on it a bit longer. In any event. That's where we left it last time, um, and that challenge again. That that and and then just just think about it as we're as layer after layer after layer. If each one of those layers is a new kind of meaning that is leveled on top of, or actually imbued within an idea like freedom. It's a, just another layer of meaning. That layer of meaning is also another layer of expectation. It's another layer of of what we want to hear when someone tells us they can properly explain free will. We want it to not only account for that, our magically subjective uh, experience of free will, we want it to also somehow measure up and explain everything, all of those layers of meaning that have been um, put into free will that because there are so many of them, of course, we don't have all those, we don't have a kind of record of all those in our mind as explicit pieces of information. And I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm saying that the way we use that, these words in society has just taken on that weight year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia. And that, that weight and the expectations that it entails is kind of there with us 
almost instinctively, because of course it isn't just philosophy texts that we're drawing all this freedom talk from. We're getting it from everywhere. And again, that's I'm making it sound like this is terrible that they're oh Jesus, why don't people just shut up about freedom? This is so stupid. I don't want to talk about that. It's wonderful. Of course, it's fantastic. But it it's soaked into everything. It's it's soaked into all media. It's in literature, it's in poetry, it's in plays, it's in TV shows. It's in, I mean, come on, find find a, a blockbuster movie, a real rock'em sock'em blockbuster movie. I don't care if they never use the word freedom once. Tell me the word freedom, the, the, excuse me, tell me the idea freedom isn't in there somewhere and that the idea of it and all of its centuries upon centuries of, of meaning is not being conveyed to you through that and through comic books and through songs and through, and through everything, just through everything. These ideas acquire this weight and then they soak back into basically every way that we communicate such that they are woven into us in a kind of I, I would say, I think the best way to call it is it's, we, have an, we have intellectual instincts that apply to these ideas. We don't know why we have them. We, we can't, I mean, to some extent, by definition, we can't piece out why we think of all these different pieces any more than we can, um, than we can very precisely identify, you know, why we have an urge to, to you know, to be loved or to have a, a mate or to, to be obviously to acquire shelter and food and all these other things. It's, it has become that kind of imperative, except it's not necessarily one that is purely biological. In fact, it is, it's an imperative that is constructed by language and ideas, but that doesn't make it any less important. But it's supposed to be a, a quick little preamble and it's been a little more than quick, but I wanted to, to lay it, to lay all that good stuff out and make sure that we were on the same page going into this. Cause I do think it's important. So as we're talking about this notion of the, of the buildup of ideas, well, there's a, a more precise term that we can start to use that might help us make a little extra sense of this. Um, and again, it gives us this additional ingredient to work with. Uh, another another kind of dimension that it's both part of the challenge that we're facing, then the challenge is what we're talking about now, but it's also going to be part of the eventual solution. All this development that we've been talking about, these these uh, this this years and years and years of language and everything else, it, it creates a replicable process of uh, of of the way we convey this information generation after generation so all the work that happens in 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 one generation it kind of passes on to the the next it it imbues itself in language it makes language more intricate it adds to our expectations of what different words mean and it continues to to sort of roll downhill like a like if you watch the Looney Tunes and you see a tiny little snowball on top of the mountain rolling downhill, well, that turns into a a, a, a giant, uh, you know, a, a huge ball of snow by the end. It's, it's just constantly accumulating this meaning. Well, this is this is a process. This is part of a process that we can call mimetic evolution, and this is uh, a, a term that was first coined by and described by the scientist and philosopher Richard Dawkins. So it, it goes like this. And by the way, I, I should say Richard Dawkins is a is a scientist. I I think it's fair to say a scientist and philosopher who's who's really operating from the perspective of Darwinian, you know, the 
the foundations of Darwinian science, the science of evolution, but then trying to use that very biological process, those very biological aspects of science, and how do we carry that through and start to explain phenomena like the mind? And he has, in doing that, come up with, I would say, uh, this is an idea that you're going to hear um, wherever you turn in the, in the philosophy of mind, the current philosophy of mind, you will come back to this idea of mimetic evolution, and it goes like this. In the same way that our physical being is the result of genes being combined and and tested, some of them fail, some of them some of them uh, succeed, and you know then therefore being passed down or not. Uh, the same way that those genes are being uh, tested and replicated generation after generation through the process of natural selection, we also use memes, meaning genes for mimesis. So uh, if the, if my M's and N's aren't coming out clearly, just to make it very, very clear, it's, it's memes, M-E-M-E-S, memes. Um, the, they're most, and a meme is, is pretty much any kind of idea, any kind of thought, any kind of sensation that we pass between each other. Uh, they're like, you know, like speech, like our behavior, like writing, like media. So in any event, let, let me stop trying to describe it, and uh, why don't we ask Richard Dawkins to step in and describe it. Uh, this is from The Selfish Gene. Quote, Examples of memes are tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothes, fashions, ways of making pots, or building arches. Just as genes propagate themselves in the gene pool by leaping from body to body via sperm and eggs, so... Memes propagate themselves in the meme pool by leaping from brain to brain via a process which, in a broad sense, can be called imitation, unquote. So saying chair and teaching someone else to say chair is a kind of mimesis. It's a way of propagating memes. Memes are really idea genes that either replicate, just like real genes, or quote-unquote real genes, just like biological genes, they either replicate themselves via their hosts or they die out for want of appeal, utility, or survivability. And like genes, they are replicated or not based on the effect that they have on their hosts in the society that those hosts are living in. So here's some more from Dawkins. Quote, when you plant a fertile meme in my mind, you literally parasitize my my brain. Uh, meaning, just as an aside here, um, it's it's uh, he's saying that a meme is is like a parasite in the mind. Um, that that word parasitize it didn't immediately uh, transfer for me. Uh, so just wanted to clarify that. Anyway, back to the quote. You literally parasitize my brain, turning it into a vehicle for the means propagation in just the way that a virus might parasitize the genetic mechanism of a host cell, unquote. So when we think of mimetic development as opposed, again, to genetic development, the, the, the survival, the way survival happens is, in, is different in either case. Yeah, if you are a gene, your survival, it, it, that means ensuring that your host survives long enough to reproduce, biologically reproduce, and therefore to reproduce you. But for a meme, survival and, and reproduction take very different paths, and it happens much, much, much faster. Uh, mimetic evolution takes place in all of the widely various ways that we record and reproduce and disseminate ideas. 
So as such, and unlike genes that are, you know, for most of us at this stage in our scientific development, uh, genes are, are a fixed factor. You know, your, your genes are what they are. Um, they're not going to change radically in the course of your lifetime. Mimetic evolution, however, occurs within our lifetime. And for that matter, it, if we're lucky, if we're, uh, if we're keeping ourselves active, it should occur every single day. Every time we experience a new idea that enters into our mimetic makeup. Further, mimetic evolution directs and is directed by the development of who we are as individuals as well as how communities and nationalities and other formed groups tend to identify themselves. Uh, Daniel Dennett, who of course we refer to, and, and uh, the, as I said before, Daniel Dennett remains the, he sort of constructed this building that we're wandering around in that I'm doing my best to, to honor his conception of it. He gave us the conceptual framework that we're working in and all this. And I believe that the majority of the things I'm presenting to you, my conclusions would fit with his, even if I'm taking uh, different paths to them and, and, uh, and kind of working to the side of some of them in any event. Daniel Dennett, who of course uh, works with this idea of memes as well, Daniel Dennett calls them tools for thinking. Now, I might take that quote a step further and, and, and say that memes are both the tools, the, the tools that we use for thought, uh, but they're also the, the materials themselves out of which our minds are created. But we're going to come back to that. Now, remember also that among the memes that most of humankind has been exposed to for millennia in one form or another is, as we've been talking about, the notion of free will, along with the notion of consciousness, the notion of mind, and etc., etc., etc. Both freedom and responsibility are memes that we tend to be exposed to early and often in a variety of different way, ways. So not only are we, are we exposed to these ideas, you know, directly when they're kind of formally defined for us, but, but also implicitly when they're there in art or in our daily experience or in pop culture, uh, in, in, or in the way, just in the way that they're talked about, in the ways that ideas are clearly related to other ideas, and then the way that all these ideas are talked to, about together. Because memes interlink, right? Uh, interlink within cells, interlink within cells, interlinked. In any event, the point is, all these memes, all these ideas, they all do come together. They all play off of one another. They're all woven together and affect one another. They change one another as well in very important ways. Anyway, so the way these memes connect and weave together and relate to one another, not, not only are the ideas themselves getting more complex, so not only is the idea of free will getting more complex year after year, uh, century after century, uh, not only is it getting more nuanced and more layered, so is the way that all of these nuanced and layered ideas are linking to one another. So all of that level of complexity is also increasing year after year, decade, century, millennia after millennia. So to, to use an, a silly example to, to illustrate that point, um, and, and we'll say this, is, this, is, this might be a, a kind of an American-specific example, so I apologize for that, but I think uh, it, it, it should carry through to a lot of folks. So how many Americans would fail to understand that a near-perfect expression of freedom, the ultimate expression of freedom, would be a guy in a kilt who had painted his face blue, 
throwing a bunch of tea in the ocean, and then driving a car very, very fast in circles for a surprisingly long period of time while a bunch of other quite likely blue-faced folks in kilts were doing exactly the same thing until it was said that one of them won. Okay, so that's silly, right? But you see how it's how each of those ideas, each of those um, references to history and goofy pop uh, uh, pop references and references to 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 the way we share culture and sports and everything else, all of those things have woven into the idea of freedom in a very important way. Now we can talk about freedom without talking about those ideas, but we have to recognize that freedom is now. Just a little bit, those ideas are part of it, no matter what else we think. Those ideas have woven into the mimetic structure of freedom as we understand it today. So to very, very, very briefly recap, our view of the world, uh, the, our experience of the world, we're always positioned in the same place in reference to every experience we have, including those in our own body and even in our own minds. Build on top of that sort of practical just fact about the way we experience the world, build on that foundation a history of the way that we use language that can take any one of these concepts that are not tied down to a thing in the world and not, not chairs, they're freedom and consciousness, ideas that can kind of float off and, and take on lives of their own. Um, the way we use language in reference to things that are our only ideas builds layer upon layer because there's nothing to nothing to stop it doing so. There's nothing to re reference it back to in the real world. So it builds layer upon layer of meaning and association and factual and emotional references that seep into our experience not only via abstract philosophy, not for most of us, not even primarily via philosophy, but more by every endeavor of the mind, meaning comic books, soap operas, religious sermons, movies, every single thing we experience that somehow came from the human mind manages to both reinforce and continue to build these various ideas and memes and, and everything else. So our unique, singular, perfectly ubiquitous view of the world world makes us want a grand explanation for how we could possibly be what we are, and every meme we ever come across does its part to affirm this view of the world, our, our somewhat what we call egotistical, metaphysically vain view of the world. Every meme we come across does its part to kind of affirm and reinforce that and to build it up and weigh it down even further with more and more and more expectation for whatever kind of explanation we will eventually create. Well, I can, I, you know, here again, I feel like I, I, I know you folks so well. I know, I know exactly what you're thinking here. You're thinking, Corey, fine. That's all well and good. But obviously, it's not like there was more than a thousand years, more than a millennium of European intellectual history, which reinforced the notion that most real and essential parts of me, uh, that, th that the most real and essential part of me was actually buried deep, deep, deep inside of my mind, away from the transient facts of my experience, away from the banality of nature, and certainly, most certainly, in sort of an active opposition to my natural body. 
And beyond that, which obviously that's not the case, it's certainly not like that millennium of explicit reinforcement of this idea was then followed by centuries in which the ideas sort of lingered in various ways and to various extents without ever really being contradicted, but also without really being explicitly identified in our experiences. And that that process, that kind of lingering continues up to that, to this very day. Obviously, it's not like any of that is true now, is it? Well, it's funny you should ask, and it's it's actually it's really funny that you should phrase it in exactly that way. But, you know, that's, that's, we're, we're simpatico, and that's a good thing. So what we'd like to do now is, is to get a bit more tangible. I want to look back to history, albeit, I should say, uh, European history. Um, that's kind of where we're limiting ourselves, and I know that European history is not world history. It's obviously been impactful for good reasons and for bad, but I understand that European history is not world history, but European history is what we're going to be talking about. Um, I'm going to look back, I'm going to work with a philosopher who's going to help us look back more than a millennium into the past, into the dark ages in Europe, and see how patterns of thinking that were established all that time ago continue to shape and influence the way we think about those ideas today, precisely because when they were going about this activity, when the activity was, was happening, whereby these words and ideas were being shaped in the first place, that idea fundamentally changed. That treatment of the, I, I should say, that treatment of these ideas fundamentally changed the ideas themselves and changed the way they carried on to this day. But let's 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 dig into the details. The philosopher Frank Farrell talks about the influence of scholarly work in the Middle Ages, and again, in Europe, and how it still molds aspects of the way people raised in these traditions think, you know, even today. Farrell studies medieval European religious thinking about the soul, which in, in medieval Europe, um, when, you, when we say you're thinking about the soul, that, that means you're roughly thinking about the same kind of phenomena that we're, we're considering when we're thinking about mind and consciousness and, and free will. Uh, and of course, as we have talked about, um, putting it all in a religious context, there are some, uh, the ramifications of that, the implications of that are very different than our naturalistic approach. But when we say broadly that someone is thinking about the soul in medieval Europe, that means they're contending with these same ideas, these same phenomena. So in any event, let, let's hear directly from Dr. Farrell. Quote, those who examine conceptions of thinking in modern philosophy often trace the models they investigate back to Descartes. But there's an earlier history to those conceptions, and we need to look at medieval philosophy if we want to understand it. The metaphysicians of that period were interested in what God's thinking and willing could possibly be like, and there were religious pressures toward intensifying the innerness of the self, since God's presence was somehow more immediate in that interior space. And since confession and other practices gave it a depth needing exploration. I believe there are models of subjectivity and of the mind's relation to the world that were shaped by those theological and religious considerations that were present in a, in a more secular form in modern philosophy, and that still shape certain contemporary positions. 
unquote. So let's unpack this. Now, as a reminder, we are creatures that define ourselves and define all of these aspects of mind, obviously, with language. And that language is used to explore and to better understand ourselves, our, the world, and these phenomenon as they relate to ourselves in the world. Now, this has always been the case for as long as we've had enough language to distinguish ourselves from the world around us. So it's in that context that we have to understand the influence of the thinking and writing of a number of religious philosophers from what we, again, sometimes call the Dark Ages in Europe. For centuries, these religious thinkers and writers, they had a monopoly on intellectualism in the Western world. These thinkers were part of the church, right? And they helped to craft the ideas that the church would disseminate in writing, in education, and even in the way priests all across Europe talked to their parishioners. So now remember, in this time and place, the church was one of the few, if not really the only entities that could reach a wide swath of humankind with any kind of message at all. Certainly when we're talking about messages related to the soul, the mind, consciousness, all of that was coming from the church at this time. That was the only sort of consistent entity that had that kind of media reach, if you will. And the church also, somewhat incidentally, but it's still very important, the church also basically controlled most, if, if really not all, of the writing that came down to us from that period and from earlier periods, since it was the church that was maintaining those old texts that, of course, you know, we couldn't scan them to a hard disk just yet, couldn't pop them up on the on the cloud. Um, they, we were talking about maintaining actual uh, physical texts. But the church not only held on to those texts, they sometimes edited them. They sometimes had to recreate them, meaning write them back out. But that means that sometimes new ideas got woven into them. I mean, if, if you want to read a fascinating example of this, read Beowulf. You see uh, just this fascinating mixture of, of kind of traditional mysticism and then very explicit talk about um, the, of the, the church and of God in, in very much the way we'd think of a more modern people discussing these ideas. But you know, neither here, neither here nor there. Point is that this institution had a tremendous, if not a singular, influence on all intellectualism of this entire period, this very long period, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years long, and it also had a tremendous influence on everything that's come down to us from that period. So these thinkers, with their total monopoly on what got thought and what got written and what got read and what got heard, they could not only craft a way of thinking about the human mind, but they could, as a consequence, help to craft the mind itself by ensuring that their thinking about the human mind was disseminated as broadly as possible and with very, very little competition. So then, why do I feel like there's some kind of real me deep down in the recesses of my being, down beneath the experience, down beneath the flesh, down beneath the brain, down past all of those details, that there's some kind of quote-unquote real me? That entity that I say instinctively, I, I, I felt like, oh, yes, yeah, sure, I could have a different body, a totally different personal history, grow up in a different place. Everything could be different, but still in some important way that could still be me if I, me, quote unquote, I, me, if I had been born in a different place at a different time. I think this way, Farrell is arguing, 
precisely because for more than a millennium, every thought that we had about the mind, every word that was spoken about the mind, every idea that was disseminated about the mind, precisely reinforced this conception of the mind. So now, remember, all the influences that are occurring in this period in terms of how we thought about personhood, about morality, about freedom, about selfhood. Now, in this period, the human, be the human body was not only thought to be very distinct from what a person really was, right? So it's, um, in this period, you had the, uh, the, the medieval church for the vast majority of people, I, quote unquote, the real me, that's, that's my soul right? That's, that's what it means when I say I, what I really am is my soul. My soul is not a part of my body. It's, it's just kind of riding around inside of it. And, and I should say, actually, that that's not exactly accurate because the body is not thought of simply as a vessel, as a kind of neutral entity that, that we inhabit the way that we would now say that we ride around in a car, the body was actually an inherently evil imposition on this pure soul that inhabited it. Appetites of the flesh could corrupt the soul. Or, by contrast, if the soul was properly pure, it could defend itself against the impulses of the body. It could defend itself against all this temptation that came to it through its connection to the body, so long as it did not accept any of these influences and impulses that were coming to it from our natural biological selves. So long as the soul remained as distant as possible from the body, you know, you might have a shot. You might be okay. So long as the soul sealed itself off as far away from all this biology that, that surrounded it, and all, and certainly as far away from the quote-unquote outside world as possible, well then perhaps, perhaps it would remain intact and incorrupted throughout the course of our presumably nasty, brutish, and short lives on this earth. So, you know, the outside physical world, that represents sin, that represents temptation, that represents all the influences that are going to lead you, the real you, that are going to lead you astray. And the outside world, again, I can't emphasize this enough, the outside world includes your own body. I mean, the outside world practically was embodied in our own bodies. It, 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 it's as if we, in, it's as if we were inhabiting a deadly parasite, not the other way around. So in that battle for salvation, this, this, I mean, eternal life and death struggle, your body is the front line in that battle, but your body's on the enemy's side, not on yours. So with all that in this worldview, everything outside is evil. And the only hope for goodness is to look inside, in the world of your prayers to God, in the world of your confessions, in the world of your deepest contemplations about goodness and purity. And it's in this continual, relentless push to retreat deeper and deeper into yourself that maybe, possibly, you may be able to reach God and to hear his message and perhaps to have your prayers heard by him. It's as if, imagine there's kind of a trap door to paradise buried somewhere deep underneath your basement. And you just, I promise you'll get there. You will, you'll get to paradise if it, you just have to keep digging and digging and digging and hope someday you'll find it. Now, just as a, as a brief aside, 
if that if you believe that and and by the way just don't you know don't take anything you hear on this podcast as you know if you hear something i say and you think oh okay i'm going to immediately take action to radically change my life on the basis of that just don't ever 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 do it definitely don't do it based on the idea that paradise is buried underneath your basement that's that's not a viable worldview but hypothetically theoretically consider if you adopted it as your worldview, not that you will, if you did, well, what, from that point forward, what would your social life be like? Would you, would you, I mean, would you, you know, go out every day? Would you sort of take a walk, uh, see the sights, soak in a little sunshine? Would you go out to dinner with your friends, you know, join a book club, that kind of thing? Or would you spend all of your time with a sh with shovel in hand, digging in the basement, just trying to get to that that promised land that's down deep inside there somewhere? It's, you know, as they say, it's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. In any event, that's how we need to think about the construction of the mind that was occurring in this period in history. The real you was deep down in there, as deep as it could possibly be, and you just had to keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper to have some hope of finding it. So we see in this, this is a notion of selfhood that, again, it's being driven relentlessly inward. In, in which, you know, it's, it's your selfhood is not only different than the physical stuff it lived in, it was under active and perpetual assault by the physical stuff that it lived in. The outside world made, made real in your very own flesh. The outside world was there to tempt you and to trick you and to prevent your, your connection to God. Uh, and remember, for, for those of you who, who heard the last Epiphenomena episode, you, of course, you rem if you did, if you heard that, you remember the brain in the vat. Well, take away the mad scientist and, and substitute in a demon uh, that's that's casting a kind of evil spell on you. And, and that idea would not seem in any way far-fetched to the people of this time who have truly adopted this worldview. So there's a scene in Shakespeare's Hamlet uh, where Claudius is trying to pray for forgiveness. Now, Claudius, by way of a reminder, Claudius was Hamlet's uncle, Claudius killed Hamlet's father, who, of course, is his own brother. Then Claudius married uh, Hamlet's mother, and uh, who was previously his sister-in-law, and took his brother's throne. So in any event, in this scene, uh, in which he is attempting to, to ask for forgiveness, and I, maybe I don't need to fill you in on all the stuff he needs to ask for forgiveness for, I feel like we just went over that pretty nicely, so the scene in which he's trying to pray for forgiveness... I've always thought that, you know, in addition to it just being a very beautiful soliloquy, it does a wonderful job of illuminating that dynamic that emerges from this relentlessly inward mindset and, and how difficult it can then be to get, quote unquote, deep enough into oneself to be in the presence of the real you, to know that you are acting on behalf of the real you, um, versus any one of these sort of uh, phenomena, these temptations, these impulses that might seem like you, but are actually wrapped up in the body, the banal outside world, the, the sins and temptations of existence. So here's Claudius. Oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it. A brother's murder. 
pray can I not. Though inclination be as sharp as will, my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. So, so what's this about? Claudius, he wants to pray. He intends to pray. And he's alone in his chamber, or, you know, he thinks he's alone. For all he knows, he's alone in his chamber. There's nothing stopping him from praying. So why, so he, he wants to pray, he can pray, he intends to pray, he has every honest intention of praying. So what's the problem? In this deeply inward theater of his own selfhood, he's managed to create th this distinction between words that express his genuine real repentance and that, that, that are real prayers, and then words that, that simply uh, take the form of prayers um, and that are therefore really are not actual prayers and thus kind of remain tied to the, the mundane physical world versus being, you know, possibly like a real prayer would be versus possibly being heard by God. The distinction is, is, is that one of those seemingly identical sets of words um, with seemingly identical sets of intentions and hopes and emotions behind them, one of those two sets of words actually connects to his true innermost self while the other set of words fails to connect to his true innermost self. As if in a very real and apparently quite important way, the prayer isn't really a prayer because it isn't really him. It isn't the real him, the one that's buried all the way deep down inside there. It isn't the real Claudius that's saying it, regardless of all of what he believes his intentions to be. And keep in mind here, as we try and distinguish between the, the real Claudius prayer and the fake Claudius prayer, that both the real prayer, quote-unquote real prayer, and the quote-unquote fake prayer, they find their source in the internal Claudius. It's not like he, he really, really means one, but the other one he's just reading off of a cue card. It's not as though he's being forced to say one at gunpoint or sword point or, or, or whatever else, while the other one he's saying of his own volition. That That's not the distinction here at all. The differentiator is purely which of those two otherwise entirely identical speech acts. Either, the, this is the difference, it either fundamentally connects to the real Claudius on the level of his soul and therefore to God, or uh, the other, it's it's uh, Claudius, the, the other option is it's Claudius saying the prayer, it's Claudius meaning the, the prayer, it's Claudius wanting to pray, but it's somehow he doesn't find a way to truly make it his own expression of his innermost self. So, in any event, faced with this conundrum, Claudius continues, quote, Try what repentance can. What can it not? Yet what can it when one cannot repent? O oh, wretched state, O oh, bosom black as death, O oh, limed soul that, struggling to be free, art more engaged. Help, angels, make us say, bow stubborn knees and heart with strings of steel, be soft as sinews of the newborn babe. And it's here we pause that Claudius actually bows to pray. 
Now, we don't hear exactly what he's praying. He doesn't say any of it out loud, but I, I think we can agree uh, that from everything we've heard here, that again, he's not he's not giving a speech to a bunch of people. He's, he's talking essentially to himself. So we have no reason to believe that he's being in any way deceptive. Um, we can agree, therefore, that what he's doing here, he's he's genuinely trying to engage in this act of prayer. Uh, he has there's nothing that he can control that's stopping him from that. There's nothing he's meaning to hold back. Um, so in any way, this is as genuine as it can be, as far as we can tell. And yet, in in some way, real way, there's obviously some kind of problem here, because Claudius stands and says, "My words fly up." My thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. Now, we may all have different levels of comfort with Shakespearean English, but there's something in this, this sentiment that I think we can all resonate with that, again, I believe is echoing down to us from uh, ideas that, were, that first started to percolate millennia ago. Words without thoughts. Words that don't have any real meaning in them. You know, of course, we can all admit to, to admit to the difference between me saying something that I, I really mean and, again, me reading off of a cue card. But this dude, again, he really meant what he was saying. He really, he meant to mean it in any event. He intended to intend it. He intended to pray. He wanted to pray. Uh, again, but, and he did, of course. I mean, he did actually pray, and yet... He could not pray in, in a way that was obviously quite important to him. He could not pray. Now, this is a pretty stunning example of how deeply we have to plunge into the depths of ourselves to get at what really is us underneath all these layers upon layers upon layers of, of stuff that not only isn't us, but somehow impedes in, and warps and distorts and corrupts the quote-unquote real us. Now, for all that, there's one last distinction that we we need to make, and this is what will take us from the challenges that we've been talking about and that have been kind of piling up around us here. This will take us from the challenges and, and start flipping the switch into what are actually some building blocks we can use to get to explanations. Um, as you'll recall, when we were talking about memes, you'll recall that I said Dennett refers to them as tools for thinking. And as, Daw as Dawkins was talking about them, and really as most people do, and as I'm sure as I have been to some large extent, kind of instinctively as we've been talking about them here, um, this idea of memes, these ideas, these words, these tunes, these, you know, all these, these transferable notions from mind to mind, we talk about them like pieces that fill up the mind. They're, they're drops of water that go into the, the chalice of, water, of, of mind that kind of fill that chalice up. Um, so that in this case, then the, the mind becomes a vessel, you know, memes go about filling it up. A and thus, whatever the memes are, the, the, the memes kind of tell you uh, what is in the mind, therefore. So either you've got a bowl of soup, or you've got a bowl of yogurt, or you've got a bowl of mud, or yeah, well, you've got a bowl of whatever else. We won't go too far down that road. But I want you to take this idea a step further as we're thinking about memes, because that's a very instinctive way. Whenever we think about an idea, a meme, a word, whatever we want to call it, we think about it going into this 
set established vessel that is our mind and, and just kind of filling it up with, with one more thing that's, that's in there. Again, I want you to go just a step beyond that. Memes, most importantly, memes that constitute the vast network of, of the interlinked memes that, that is language. Memes do not just fill up, in my opinion, memes do not just fill up this empty vessel of mind. They create the mind itself. They create every aspect of the mind. Memes, and again, the most, for, for our purposes, the most important and the most pervasive and expansive and influential of these sets of memes is language, which of course contains just an infinite number of memes uh, one way or the other. Memes and lang through language make selfhood. Memes make our identity. Memes in a very real way make the experience of consciousness. And memes make freedom. Memes make free will. These ideas that we've accumulated, they're what produce all of these faculties of mind that are so important to us. They not only fill up the, the vessel of mind, they not only fill up the chalice with kind of real and meaningful and important content, which, which they do that too. That's, this is where the, the distinction gets to be a little, a little, a little, a little difficult in the way that I'm telling. And of course we could be far more precise, but I don't think um, that's going to take a lot of prep to get us there. Um, but in, in the context of how we're talking about this now, memes not only fill up the mind, though they do that, um, they also provide the shape, the texture, the structure of what we of what we've come to experience mind to be, of the way we experience our own mind, that itself is built up by these various memes, by the, the language and the ideas and the instincts and the traditions that have come down to us. So the fact that people in this period, in the medieval period in, in Europe, used language to explain the mind in a certain way, it actually caused the mind to transform itself over a period of time. Now, now again, we, remember, we've been talking about how words create these ideas, these abstractions, like freedom and consciousness and all the rest. Well, well, this is the perfect example. We just need to make sure we are taking that idea to as far an extreme as is appropriate, which I believe is, is, is surprisingly far, uh, at, at least based on what our instincts typically are. The way people at that, in that period talked about and wrote about and thought about the mind fundamentally changed its nature, fundamentally changed its structure generation after generation into something which it felt appropriate that it ought to feel isolated and inviolate and, and in a way fundamentally opposed to what we've been calling normal, boring, physical stuff. Well, it turns out it's not so normal and boring after all. It's sin. And it has been on this basis that we've not only created our theories of mind or our, our descriptions of mind, the ideas that we have about mind, it's on this basis that we have created and cultivate the, cultivated the ideas which are the mind itself, which is the mind itself. When you take them all together, weave and interlink them in an appropriate way. Which is kind of a, a kind of a heavy thought here. Um, if we if we want to kind of use another use an analogy, I think we mentioned this already before, but this is kind of like you know we 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 talk about hardware versus software. 
Of course, the brain, the brain has changed over the, the course of human evolution and it will continue to do so. But the brain isn't changing radically throughout the course of all this. The brain is remaining pretty much the same. The hardware is remaining the same. What we have to realize is that when we're talking about something like the mind, we're talking about something which is much more a matter of software. I, I guess probably the, a good analogy would be you've got your hardware, then when you have your software, you have both operating system and you have all the programs that operate within it. Well, mind is kind of our operating system, but that operating system was created in a very real way by these mimetic traditions, which very much live. And I, I hope I've done enough to demonstrate this and what we've talked about. But believe me, if I felt like going on for even much longer than I thought this was going to be. And by the way, I thought the last two episodes were going to be one episode that would be a little short. And I kind of have to apologize to folks who are like, oh, geez, guys, I'm sorry this ended up being a little shorter than I intended. Well, that's not the way it worked out, obviously. So I rescind my apology that this, uh, that this one episode was so short that it now turned into two somewhat longer than average episodes. But in any event, with all that, we will leave it here today, and we're going to come back to this next time. Before we turn to our solutions, we're going to linger just a little bit longer on the challenges. But to make clear the influence that I believe some of these challenges have had, we're going to actually look directly at the work of a guy named Wilder Penfield, who it's reasonable, I believe, to describe Wilder Penfield as the as the, the father of modern neuroscience, in the way that you would you would talk about Newton in physics. Now, not all of Newton is still like super up to date anymore, but I don't think you're going to talk to any physicists who say, oh, you know, Newton, just ignore that. Just forget about Newton. He didn't do anything. Uh, he set us back a million years. No, no, no. Newton is very important in the same way. Wilder Penfield operating in the earlier part of the 20th century, very important sort of father of neuroscience kind of figure. We're going to look at his work in neuroscience, and we're going to look at what that told him about not only the brain, but about the mind. And ultimately, I think we're going to piece out why some of the mistakes that I believe, not just me, by the way, uh, but that I believe he made when trying to translate brain into mind, we're going to see how some of those mistakes resonate not with some, no, he didn't make a mistake in doing the neuroscience. He didn't uh, uh, do neurosurgery wrong. No, the, the mistakes he's making actually echo back to uh, the 7th century in, an, in a convent in, uh, in an abbey in, in France somewhere where these notions of, of mind were being developed. But again, I digress. I thank you once more for tuning in. I hope to see you next time, and I'm very much looking forward to it.